I'm on right now. I don't believe you. That's not six. One plus two plus two plus one. You really are crazy. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Me? No, come on. Don't be crazy. Welcome to Don't Be Crazy, a movie podcast where we delve into the world of cinema and explore what makes certain films good or bad. I'm your host, Zach Rancourt, and every week I bring together other film enthusiasts to analyze, discuss, and dissect some of the most popular and critically acclaimed movies of all time. Whether you're a film buff or just a casual moviegoer, our show is sure to provide you with a fresh perspective and thought-provoking insight into the world of cinema. So grab your popcorn, sit back, and join us as we explore the art of filmmaking and discover what truly makes a movie great. All that I ask is don't be crazy. Hello, everyone. We have a wonderful, full episode for you today. Um, I am going to get right into the guest that I have on the show uh, from the top five podcast. I have Tom Lockhart. Tom, hi. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm just being me. Oh, wow. (laughs) And that's all I ever want you to be is just Tom. Okay, maybe like sometimes Brad Pitt, though, because then you could say funny lines from like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So. I do have the the ripped abs that he has, of course. Yeah, I, I know, I can tell. Um, and then uh, a she is no stranger to the podcast. She is the co-host of the Don't Be Crazy podcast. She's actor extraordinaire, director, creator, everything. I don't even know. So many adjectives. Amanda Jane Stern, how are you? I'm good. It's good to be back. It's 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 been. I know I've been on set and at film festivals, so it's been a couple of weeks and I missed all of spooky season, which sucks because that's my favorite. Yeah. You know what, though? You, you were there in in thought and in prayer, you know, because uh, when we did the exorcist, we were praying a lot, too, and we were Great. speaking in tongues. So Wonderful. You, you, I love you it. Were, you were in our minds and our hearts. <laughs> I am wearing a Ouija board sweatshirt right now. Oh, shit. So. Burn, it, burn it with fire. Burn it with fire. <laughs> Uh, this person, though, he he never gets burned because he's already too hot. And that is uh, the other co-host of the Top 5 Podcast, Eric Shane. Hi, Eric. Hello. How are you, bud? I'm great, man. Uh, it's so great to have you guys on, on this show. So Tom and Eric, uh, we do the Top 5 Podcast where we discuss random Top 5 lists. But I pulled them on to this Don't Be Crazy Podcast to discuss movies. And they're very smart, just like Amanda. So we're going to get right into it. We are reviewing Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story. So Medicine Man is releasing in 2023, but I believe the film was made in 2020. If that is incorrect, I will edit it out. Um, But it is a new movie and it'll be in theaters on November 14th uh, worldwide via Fathom Events. The film was directed by Paul Michael Angel, and it stars Stan Brock amidst other people. So it's a documentary. We haven't really done a documentary on the Don't Be Crazy podcast, but it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. Critically, right now on IMDb, this movie has an 8.3 out of 10. So pretty dang good. And again, it is available uh, nationwide. I apologize when I said worldwide earlier. Nationwide, November 14th in theaters. Fathomevents.com if you want to find tickets. And I know they have those Fathom events everywhere. They're great. Here is a quick synopsis of Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story. A timeless documentary adventure recounting the incredible life story of British-born Amazonian cowboy turned US TV star Stan Brock, who sacrificed everything to bring free healthcare to people in need. At once a heartwarming tribute to the unifying power of volunteerism and an exploration of a perennial outsider's search for meaning through giving of himself. 
This film is a challenging and inspirational tale of an unlikely man on an improbable yet unwavering mission to unite a nation and resolve one of the biggest social issues of our time, the U.S. healthcare crisis. That's all I really have in the, in, in the sense of the interest stuff. I know it's a little unconventional for what we do, but that's okay. You know, we pivot. Um, we're just going to get right into this. And uh, you know, we were we were lucky enough to get screeners of this documentary to watch. Um, I myself am a huge documentary fan. We might have done a top five episode on it. We might not have. I'm not really sure. But uh, either way, I have a whole bunch of favorite documentaries that I've, I've seen that have affected me, that have influenced me for for whatever kind of, you know, uh, reasons. And um, I think this one was 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 up there with one of the, the better ones I've seen, too. So I'll just ask you guys right away, you know, how did you feel after watching this movie? Eric, go ahead. Go sure. Ahead. That's usually Tom usually starts. So we'll go with that. I, I first of all, I love documentaries. and We'll get into that later on. I, I thoroughly enjoy documentaries. Um, I, I just love the means of storytelling. Um, it's a different kind of truth, a different kind of way of exploring truth. Um, the power of perspective, uh, perspective, uh, you know, just the different perspectives of the people on the ground. Um, after watching this, I felt honestly, I felt kind of the way I did going into it. I felt sort of defeated <laughs> to be completely honest. <laughs> I already felt that way. Uh, my background in this particular topic is um, I'm a politics buff. And I'm a veteran, so I've gone through like the healthcare at the VA before, and like that—that's really my background with this particular topic. So I was just like, I already had an idea of how screwed up it is and how hard it is to move the needle on this. So I, I at once, though, I, I really loved his motivation, and um, I'm always inspired by people who go out of their way to help, and. I mean, he really went out of his way to help. And those people who are part of it really go out of their way. And they uh, hitting just bureaucratic roadblocks and hitting uh, mental roadblocks that they shouldn't be reasonably hitting. That just seems to defy all logic and counterintuitive. Um, it's it's frustrating. I can understand why they're frustrated. So I just sort of felt I, I didn't feel I didn't come out of it feeling hopeful, like, yes, we could get through this together. No, um, I, I felt as de defeated as I felt going into it. That's how I felt. And I guess that's that's the hard thing with documentaries, too. Right. You, you know, there's going to be some bias in, in them for sure. It's almost impossible to not have any bias. And sure. so we, we go in selecting documentaries um, to maybe feel a certain way or to hopefully feel a certain way or to learn something new. And it's difficult because if I watch, you know, uh, like Showa, like this nine and a half hour documentary, I'm going to feel really sad because it's about Holocaust survivors. It's not going to make me cheerful and happy. Um, so so that's that's the tough thing. And, and I get what you're saying completely. Um, and you being so politically savvy, you know, I, I definitely am a fan of, of what you're putting down because I think I like your mindset and, and where it's at. You just really have your finger on that pulse. Um, but with these with these types of uh, like hot button issues and stuff, um, yeah, the documentary, I think at the end of this one, it just it opened my eyes even wider because we knew there was a problem. And I think that's just indicative of, of just the system itself is we're, we're going to keep trying and trying and trying. And, and somehow it's it, we're going to fix it. But it's it's obviously an arduous process. And it's just to see this in the, in the forefront, I think, was really important for, for me, at least, because it just strengthened my <laughm <Ashley> my hatred of our healthcare system. But mm -hmm. yeah, Amanda, how do you feel? 
Oh, oh Tom, go ahead. Well, I was going to jump in because uh, this is the first time on this uh, show that I'm an actual expert. Um, I am a medical coder in my day job. Uh, I make sure that providers, A, don't overcharge you for certain things, but sadly, also, that they don't miss what they should charge you for. And I'm going to give you a little rundown on how it hurts every day to do this. Um, So say you go into the doctor and you say, oh, I have a cold. The doctor does an exam and he goes, yep, you have a cold. You should take some NyQuil and then send you on your way. That right there is what we call a level three visit. Doctor just kind of said, yep, I looked at you. You're kind of, and I'm not going to do anything. That is $200 right there. You are being charged $200 for a doctor to say, yes, you have a cold. That's why whenever my wife tells me to go to the doctor, when my cold's going a little long, I say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's dumb. Now say that doctor then does everything exactly the same, but prescribes you some sort of medication that is needed with, you need a prescription to get. That just jumped up to a level four visit. Just by writing you a prescription, you just added $150 to your bill. Isn't it just great? (laughs) Um, And most people would say, oh, that's fine. Insurance pays for most of that, which sounds good. But a lot of people have this thing called a deductible. And if you only go to the doctor twice a year, you're not going to hit your deductible. You're paying all that money. Even worse, if you don't have insurance, you're just paying everything. Um, today I coded something and it hurts me every time I code it. And it was for infusion for uh, multiple sclerosis. The drug for that is, do you guys want to make a guess on how much this drug costs? $20,000. You are really low. Oh. 50000 Whoa. You are still low. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, $75,000. And you have to get that twice a year. That is is so stupid. That is so stupid. Only for the drug. You also still have to pay for the actual infusion procedure, which is another $600. But that's just a drop in the bucket now. Like, that's no big deal. Getting to live is just for funsies. Which, I mean, insurance does cover probably, it's like 98% of that if you have insurance. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you just don't have that drug. (laughs) Like, you just can't afford it. And to answer the question, I came out of this exactly the same as I went in because I see it every day and I was just like, yep, sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just kind of have to be optimistic and not pay attention to that stuff most days. Otherwise, I would go crazy. <laughs> yep. I, um, my, I was about to say my doctor is a grandfather. No, my grandfather was a doctor <laughs> and I, he's retired now, but I remember all of his stories about prescribing very important medications to people and then having to fight with insurance about, no, I prescribe this specific thing. And if you give them this thing just because it does the same thing, it's going to literally kill my patient. You are not a doctor. Give them what I fucking prescribed. Like your insurance, cover the fucking medication. I'm giving it to them for a reason, not just because it's fun. Like that's, you know. Um, So I, I remember hearing a lot of stories like that from him uh, and that was really his his whole thing actually was that Medicare and Medicaid fought back the least about specific prescriptions. So he liked dealing with them the most for that reason that they wouldn't say, well, you prescribed this, but how about we give them this instead? 
but he found that private insurances would do that all the time. And he'd have to say, no, I did not prescribe that for specific reasons. There are comorbidities that this patient has that they cannot, you know, take that medication. That's terrible. Uh, yeah. I will, t- I will tell you right now, Medicare and Medicaid are the two best because the objective of those two things is to keep people out of hospitals. They yeah. actually want doctors to keep people from going to the doctor for those two. And it's just like, why can't we do the whole system that way? Like, keep people out of the hospital. Oh, wait, wait you mean the Medicare system, the socialized health care that tax dollars pay uh, for that we all then yeah. have? Oh, because of that one lady in the documentary who doesn't believe that everybody should have health care. I wanted to strangle her. How yeah. dare you go use a free health clinic, you fucking bitch. So, oh my God, you <laughs> lacking empathy cunt. Well, and that was the thing about it. And then that's part of the politics that I hinted at. There's like, well, she explicitly said, I'm really grateful for the service. If it was on the ballot, I'd vote against it. Yep. Like, <laughs> how I, dare you? And I'm, ne- I'm, and I'm never. I, I hate the phrase whenever somebody suggests in politics, people are voting against their own self interest. I hate that phrase because fuck you, you don't get to decide other people's self interest. That mm. said. She's voting against her own self-interest. Literally, <laughs> yeah. her self-interest was going to a free clinic. It, yeah, that it's it, that mind-boggling. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's such a lack of empathy that I I don't know I can comprehend that belief that things only matter when they happen to you. I I don't get that. I really yeah. don't, and I don't know that I ever will. Yeah, I mean, I know when we get. We're going to get into this more later. I know we're planning on it, but it's like at the same time, this this particular conversation, this angle of the conversation, we could go on for hours. Yeah. And, and hours and hours. So uh, I'm trying to see, keep a couple of kernels in my in my back pocket for <laughs> unless, <laughs> I know, I, unless I, we just want to go completely free form here. I Zach texted and, Zach yesterday when I was watching it and I was just like, you know. I like I I don't know what I have to add other than I'm really sad and I'm really angry. It's a great talk. It's doing a good job, but uh, fuck well, healthcare. <laughs> let's let's just jump. I mean, because this is why I'm going to tie it all together with each of these questions to the, to the documentary Medicine Man. Because Eric, I know you're saying you know you, you felt the same and the same thing with Tom and, and Amanda. I'm I'm wagering that you kind of felt the same. Like you, we all we all kind of knew what was going in. The healthcare system sucks in the U.S. It's bullshit. Um, but you know, we're going to watch this documentary and see what happens. And I think that's the whole point of it is we know the system sucks, but this is also a bridge between how this one man uh, changed his life in order to selflessly uh, fight for what's right. And and he's the little person fighting against these corporations who, who uh, value greed over healthcare or over people's lives. And, and I know that it, it's just one person, but hopefully this can inspire others, or at least it gets the discourse going. And so the U.S. healthcare system, like we're talking about, it's just this highly, com- it's highly complex in its machinations and processes that have uh, led to decades and decades of discussion, just like we're having now. So there are tons of strong opinions that have arise from politicians and citizens across the country on what solution uh, should be the best. So these discussions will always cause some sort of heated uh, discussion or emotion. And I guess the, the biggest question, and it doesn't even have to do strictly with, with healthcare, but like, how do we navigate hot, but hot button societal issues? Like, how do we give our opinions on something without having to take the extreme on one side or the other? We are in this country, not geared towards that anymore. Um, and have not been for a long time. There's been a concerted effort um, within our, I, I'm trying to, 
in politics, the goal is to create wedge issues to drive to drive predictability in the polling and drive it to make it simpler to run for office and easier to run for office and easier to raise money to run for office and to obtain office. A wedge issue you can run on it forever. A solved problem you can run on it once, right? Um, this is not conspiracy theory. This is like this is the thing you do is you have a what they or they go out of their way all sides to to find a wedge on every single issue. So that's why you'll see. I mean, literally, you saw this when uh, Obama was president. For example, he uh, you know the the right had said we need to do this this or this on this on on one issue. And Obama said, okay, yes, I agree, let's do it. And then they said, okay, well, we're going to vote against it. They actually shot down their own bill specifically because Obama said, okay, yeah. I remember right, when that uh, happened. Oh yeah. I, I remember that happening in real time. Yeah. <sighs> That's intentional. They do that on purpose. They, they, anymore, they believe in nothing. And so wedge issues are, that's, that's gold to them. That's how they make their money. So when you're talking about, you, you heard that lady in the documentary is like, well, mm-hmm. it's cause it's socialism. Well, no, it isn't, but we can't it's say not at it's all. Not. not at all. That's not the definition of socialism at all, but okay. They're, they're not they're not interested in complexity like that. They they have decided that it's socialism, so it is. In their minds it is, and you'll never convince them otherwise. How how do you have a conversation? How do you even begin to I don't know. Where, where do you go from there? I, I don't I don't know if there is an answer. Uh, you're looking for I the, the question was, how do we uh, how do we give our opinions without having to take the extreme? You can do it. You can give your opinion without taking the extreme. The thing is, though, is you're not going to be able to convince anybody else, really, because we identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election. I mean, it's there are people for whom, you know, you mentioned spooky season a minute ago, Amanda. Uh you don't know me, but I've talked about it a couple times. In October, mm-hmm. I am a spooky clown on Fridays oh. and Saturdays at <laughs> at Stalker Farms in Snohomish Valley, and I, 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 yeah, I could send you pictures. I am a scary clown person, and I freak people out. And I was doing line entertainment, which is me. I was sort of messing with people in line and whatever have you. And you know, I'm talking about something or other, and somebody like completely unprovoked, so yeah, because of Biden, <laughs> and I'm like. Okay. <laughs> what? Feel feel free to get a personality like at any time. Oh my god! And that's my response to that. It's like that their politics becomes their entire personality, entirely. It becomes their entire identity, all the way through, up and down. Well, ha- that's that's how I feel. I mean, yes, but that's really people who are are very. And this is an entirely different issue, but I guess healthcare is part of it. Um, people who are so vehemently like anti-trans people, specifically yeah. TERFs, the trans exclusionary radical feminists, they they must spend literally all of their time creating these fantasies of scary trans women in their head. Now, look, I'm a I'm a cisgendered woman. Um, I support trans women and trans men and people of any gender identity. I don't spend 24-7 thinking about trans people people because you know there are things going on other than me needing to freak myself out about nothing yeah but like but they clearly that 
and you'll see this come up in conversations that you'll be having a conversation with one of these people and it will be something entirely, it, it could be about, you know, the price of produce at the grocery store. And all of a sudden they're talking about trans people and you're like, wait a minute. Right. I, I just talked about broccoli. How did yeah. that, where Somewhere. did that happen? No, no, no. I see the connection there. <laughs> <laughs> Broccolis are crowns. Drag queens yeah. have crowns. <laughs> Drag queens to transsexual people. I've connected it. Boom. They solved. <laughs> the mystery is Logic. solved. Logic. Oh my god. No, and, and that's. I think that's kind yeah. of what I'm, what I'm talking about with the question is is because we can expand just from there. Because yeah, that does have to do with healthcare, right? Because mm-hmm. um, and Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, but certain you know um, procedures that people would get who are transitioning might not be covered in certain states because they don't recognize that. And that's bullshit because honestly, that's none of their fucking business. Nope. That is the, the person's business abortion rights. Again, something, a hot button issue that you cannot take one firm side without someone biting your head off. Now, my stance is women can do whatever the fuck they want with their own bodies because they are their own bodies. And it blows me away that, that men have a say in this and that we say that, blah, 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 church and church and church. And Jesus said this and I'm sorry, but, but that, that is insane to me. Um, now I definitely would get kickback from, from that stating that opinion. Right. But if I went maybe a little more middle and said, well, you know, I think the women need their rights, but I do see how like a family dynamic can be screwed up because of this. Like, both sides would probably tell me I'm wrong. So right? we are we are 20 minutes, not even 20 minutes into this, <laughs> and anyone even center right is turned it off. Yep. Pretty much. Yep. And and that's 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 so crazy about this world. And I mean, I, it was exacerbated with the pandemic, right, where we yeah. all were alone in our thoughts, thinking about trans women the hoax, being the turf. Pandemic, that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I know. Yeah, they're they're gone. Go ahead. Get, get, say whatever <laughs> you want. Now. Left. Say whatever. <laughs> You know what? All I good. think they heard my voice from the get-go, and they're like, oh, it's the queer loud lady. We're gone. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. P- Pizzagate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, and and I, I think it's just so hard to have an, a normal discussion anywhere um, about anything. And, and just back to what Eric was saying, you know, there are so many people that have their heels dug in with these wedge uh, decisions and wedge topics that you, you can't ever really listen to them because they're not going to be bartered with or bargained with, you know, they don't believe in the reason they just want chaos. And and mm-hmm. it's, it's insane to me. I mean, if you tell them that Kevin Bacon was in Footloose, they're going to say absolutely not. And even if you're like, okay, I, I'd like to hear you out a little bit. They will not like it. That's it. They're right. And, and that's done. And it's, it's insane to me that people can't just have civilized conversations at times. Um, so that goes with this documentary is what I'm getting at. But Tom, well, uh, and we got to remember it actually goes both ways because there are people who are yelling that we should have free health care. But 100%. I don't think they, they realize how hard that fix is going to be. It's not just right. going to be like one day we vote free health care and then we have free health care. <laughs> and the then everyone hospital system no problems, runs yeah. off of this system. They can't just change overnight. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of employees that where's that money going to come from? That's going to take probably a couple decades to get it to where it needs to be for free healthcare. It's not just going to be like, we have it now guys. Hurrah. It'll, it'll never be free. I mean, taxpayers are paying yeah. for it. Right? Yeah. The that's the, you system. Got, has and that's one somewhere. of the, that's one of the big uh, sticking points for, for those on the right that I hear all the time. It's like, yeah, it's, 
they chafe at the notion of it's free. Mm-hmm. It's not free. Yes. It's absolutely not free. And Tom already alliterated yeah. like all those costs. They're not going to go away. <laughs> they're still going to be but there. And guys they like might Tom come down because we can't yeah. gouge insurance for the money. It might come down, but it's not going to go away. <laughs> But you won't have to pay $75,000 uh, for a drug. <laughs> those people also chafe at the idea of, well, why should my tax dollars yeah. help someone else? What do you think your tax dollars do anyway? What do you think well, the point of tax dollars are? They go into a live, piggy bank. <laughs> right. Do, do you want to live in this country and do you want to get the benefits that come with living in this country? Do you want social security benefits or certain protections? Because if not, you can leave. But if you want those things, then they also go for other people. It's not just you. It's not the yeah. one person country. If you want that, go find an island and fuck off, please. You know, that sounds like socialism, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> That's not even what socialism means. I, I, I know. I know. Trust me. Um, I, but Tom and Tom brought up a really, the really good point is looking at the other side of the coin, this stuff does cost money. And, and mm-hmm. I'm with you, Tom, it's is, you know, I'm liberal, but I'm, I lean more towards moderate and, and looking at stuff where here in Washington state, we have extreme liberals who I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Where, in, in what fantasy land do you think that doctors will work for free? you know, seven days a week and you're going to get tip top medical care. Oh, in Canada, they do it. Well, there's a lot it's of checks free. and balances that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and different ways of life in Canada. So, so it's a, it's a different complexity to it. Um, and I mean, at the end of the day, I want affordable health care for everybody. It's, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a basic right as a human. If you're sick, you should be able to get taken care of at the hospital and not have to go live on the street after that. That's, that's what it is. Now, with that being said, I don't have an answer for how to, to, make the healthcare more affordable because that is for hopefully smarter minds than, than myself, not geriatric people who probably took advantage of that when they were younger. Um, yep. but it, you know, we need younger people in office. I tell you, oh, Anyhow, the geriatric people who were alive when there were more socialized policies and, uh, people were making better money and are, are yeah. like, we were doing better financially. Those people who are making <laughs> it worse for the rest of us. You, you could buy a house for a, a bag of beans. You just you go give some pin, pinto beans and there's your house. Amanda, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of anxiety from you and I just want to <laughs> say, you got to give up the avocado toast. Okay? Oh, yeah. So yeah. Give yeah. up the avocado yeah. toast. I it make all my own. Sense. And the Thank lattes. Yeah. And, I, I and made some this morning for breakfast. <laughs> it was delicious. I didn't know we were doing a a millionaire podcast right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, those million dollar avocados. I love avocados. Um, It's but I mean, you guys are all right. And I'm really glad we're having this discussion because that's that's the biggest thing, right? You know, you get it from both sides, extremism from both sides. And it's like, why can't we just look in, in the middle here and and everybody expects someone to take a stance on it? Like if I said, Eric, what's your opinion on the healthcare system in the US? You can't just be like. I refrain from from discussing that. No, we then, all agree it sucks. It's just yeah. we can't. We will not agree on a solution. But if I mean, let's say it's a different topic in general. I mean, but I will say we're not in the middle right now. We are still on the left here. You know, yeah. There, it, things are so polarized right now that to actually be in the middle of the two polar opposites isn't even what you would really consider middle anymore because it's anymore. still so extreme. Well, I mean, what would a middle solution look like here? Because I you can't have even. a uh, a a government controlled medical system and say that that's anywhere remotely close to middle. Anything no. private would be middle, or anything public would be to the left. Exactly. Say. Mm-hmm. So any public solution, any national healthcare system, is immediately a leftist solution. Yeah. 
And there's no political currency on the right to make that happen. None. And there's, there's no deal that could be made. None. It would be pol- political suicide for anyone on the right to vote to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, I, it might also just go back to the whole two-party system issues that really we just, has we just not. Saw, listen, we just saw in the House of Representatives a couple weeks ago oh my God. the problem with the oh three-party system. Yeah. <laughs> because they are two the, – the GOP is two different parties at this yes, point. Absolutely. Right and you, they just showed why a three-party system doesn't work. No. That's why it, we're split. It felt like high school. Three parties doesn't work. It high felt like a fucking high school you're, you're voting gonna, You're never going to be able to. It only works if you can have reasonable people. And the, yep. the system does not reward reason. No. That um, was a circus. Um, that was a absolute circus. It was. Well, I'm, I'm saying so. We could talk about how you know the the evils or the the downside of the two party system. The entire thing is built around the existence of the two party system at this point. If you were, you could. I don't. You know. Yeah, I think it's a symptom of our polarization. I, I don't know if it's a cause of it, or maybe it's a little bit of the uh, Aurorbos uh, snake eating the tail sort of thing. I yeah. Don't know. Oh, I do love the good a good Ouroboros. I'm, I'm glad I could throw that out there for you. Thank you. Thank you. you, it, you it, I am actually a very big fan of, of that. Yeah, I dig it. Well, you know, I do want to to kind of bring this to a, a, a happier tone, right? Because no. this this movie, <laughs> this uh, this film, you know, it, it deals with the the uncertainty that is getting sick in the U.S. and, and the, um, you know, aforementioned healthcare system. And so. The other part of it, though, that it focuses on is this remarkable person that is Stan Brock. I mean, he was a Amazonian cowboy. He was a British-born, uh, poverty-led. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but he got a scholarship to school, and he moved out to um, Guyana, British Guyana, and he became a cowboy, and he tried to figure out what he was doing with his life and got an opportunity to become a TV star. But then later on, after, after that was kind of done, he realized that his purpose was was different in life and, and he needed to do something different. So he dedicated his entire life, the remainder, remainder of his years, um, in fighting this and, and creating the remote area medical uh, volunteer team to bring health care to places that normally wouldn't get it. And I think that's so that's so wonderful. And in, when I hear stories of this of remarkable people, they just seem too good to be true. People like Mr. Rogers, uh, LeVar Burton, Gary Sinise uh, and Dolly Parton. They all take their fame that they have and they put it to use by focusing their time and their resources and their money to selflessly help others. Yet we unfortunately live in this cynical world that that many think it may just be a PR stunt or that there may be some sort of catch, right? There's always a catch. And I guess, is it fair for us to be so cynical and assume that maybe these people, quote, can't be that great in real life? Or can we believe that there actually are, in fact, wholehearted, good, wonderful, extravagant people in this world that just care? There are, and I will make this very clear, this world is full of people who are just trying to make it to the next day, who are trying to raise their families, who want their kids to go to good schools while they'll be safe and get a good education. They want to, they don't want to have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from. They want to know that the roof over their head is going to be stable and they want to have hope for the future. And I don't care if that's here in America or in Iraq or wherever you are. That's the, that's the human experience. That's what people expect to, to want. That's the basic expectation. That's what they want. Um, and the world is full of people 
with empathy and there are very good people everywhere. And I get scam calls every single day of people trying <laughs> to take shit from me and who do take advantage of the elderly who don't understand or easily confused by this modern world and will gladly without a shred of joy, just take everything they own. Just take it. Um, so yeah, there are really good people out there, but the cynicism, like, I, I would never encourage cynicism, but I understand it. Like, I, I understand the cynical view on it. I'd say I'm a generally skeptical person, but I think something to note about the people you mentioned is that, yes, they're doing amazing things. They're not asking to be recognized for them. It just – someone else usually leaks it. They're like, did you right. know yeah. Dolly Parton did this? And if you ask her, she'll just say – Oh yeah, you know she's not out there saying hi. I'm Dolly Parton. Look at me do good. Exactly. It's the you know when someone is doing something good and it's well, I want all the recognition. Look at what I did. That's the PR stunt. But if you're just doing it and you don't need anyone to know that you did that, no, then you're you are legitimately just doing something good yeah. for the sake of it. Virtue signaling. With, yeah. Yeah, and that's yes. Like Stan Brock, he did not want to be recognized. No, they, not they at literally all. said, "You are people know who you are, so you have to." But he did not want his face to be. <laughs> no, he was introvert. Uh, I am. I am actually very okay with people who want the credit too, because as here's the thing: as long as you're doing something that is helping people, I don't care if you're doing it as a PR stunt. Like as long as you're helping people, I'm still cool with it. No big deal to me. Like you help people. If you didn't hurt anyone, but you just wanted to be like, ah, I'm a great guy. Yeah, it's it's a little narcissistic, but they still help people. Uh, I'm a very optimistic person. I've described myself as floating through life <laughs> pretty much all the time. <laughs> and my wife always says that I'm like a cat. I just land on my feet. Like everything goes Tom's way. I don't know how, how but it does. Uh, and I like to think of the best of people, even if – they're doing it in a slightly douchey way. <laughs> We've had this conversation many times where we're Seahawks fans. And for a long time, we had Russell Wilson here in town. And he's the kind of guy who he always gave the best press conferences and the go Hawks. And he would go to the Seattle Children's uh, Hospital and he, every Tuesday and visit the kids. And there was an underlying thing of, well, uh, I think uh, was it uh, Sean Payton, his new coach in Denver, basically told, "Dude, stop running for office. You're not running for office. You're a quarterback." Okay, exactly. Uh, uh, you know whether he was doing that as sort of a publicity thing or not, he still made those kids' day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Kids who needed who that support and that love and that attention, like he still was there for those kids, and that's still an incredible thing that he did. Even if there were was a little bit of a you know self serving uh, just a teeny tiny bit, the larger part as to Tom's point is he did a lot of good doing that, and and that's why documentaries like this are are so important because they can show that Stan Brock is is a person who doesn't want to do this to be like I want to be famous. He he didn't even tell his closest confidants and colleagues like you know that he had cancer for twenty years, terminal cancer. Yeah. And so that part broke my heart when when, you know, he died, because I, I, I in the back of my mind, I'm like, OK, he's older. I wonder if he's still alive. And then they actually show, you know, that he, he passed away while filming. And it just it was so sad because here is such a good person who just cared and cared and cared. Um, and, you know, his altruism just like, exemplified who he was. Right. Or people could see that. But he 
unless you knew, like I had no idea who Stan Brock is. It sounds like a fake name to me, <laughs> um, you know, but but he was just so selfless and he he wanted to do the right thing. Um, very much akin to, you know, um, a Schindler, right? Like I just, I, I could have saved more and, and it's, it's just so heartbreaking, but documentaries like, won't you be my neighbor with Mr. Rogers? Right. So the, the, the entire thing is, is supposed to be about Fred Rogers. Right. And there's a constant underlying um, theme or plot that they're trying to get at. And they say, is Mr. Rogers real? Cause so many people, even talk show hosts are like, you know, are you, are you on the straight? Are you on the up and up? Like you gotta be drinking backstage and, and hitting your wife or something. And no, he's like every person that has ever been close to them is like, that's Fred. He is just, he'll laugh with you outside of the stuff, but no, he's just a kind person who believes in, in children and the power of children and, and, and loving, you know, nature. And I think it's, it's so beautiful to see that in people. And it really inspires me because I mean, I'm an, I'm an asshole at times and I know that, but I think that this, documentaries like this really help bring me back down to reality and realize the world's a whole lot bigger than me. And so it's kind of a self-reflection point for me. Anyone else? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Sorry, that didn't, that didn't need to be the exclamation point. It was or a the, good exclamation or, point. Or the though. period on it. But it really was. <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, I, I really, this documentary I think affected me really heavily in, in the sense of, um, I, I, I like to volunteer and like what Amanda's saying, like, I don't want to be ostentatious with things, but you know, like I have a, a good blood type, like I have a negative. And so I think it's like 18% of the population has a negative. So I'm like, well, that there we go. That's my duty to donate as much blood as I can because I'm healthy. I take care of myself. I will donate blood. Now I don't need accolades for it. I don't need to go out and post things on Instagram and be like 10 donations in let's go hashtag blood and you know, like shit like that. Um, but at the same time, the other side of the coin on that. Hashtag blood. Hashtag blood, baby. It's not spooky season anymore. I know. But on the other side of that coin, and, and, and this is what I'll say about it, and I think Tom might have been hinting at this when he was talking about he doesn't care if people have, have it as a PR stunt. Um, we live in a world of social media, right, where you, know, you hashtag things and you get those movements going. Like, look at the ice bucket challenge, right? That blew up, and there was so much money that was donated to ALS research. And I think... That yes, some some trends can be really really cringy and crappy, but there are other ways too to really progress a movement and show that hey, it's cool to do this. And so I think that that's that's what's awesome. And I, I would hope that people after they see this documentary at least check out uh, you know remote area medical and and those sweet you know people who are donating ten dollars here, twenty dollars there, and that's what kept them afloat as an organization was so great to see because it's the, it's the power of, of one, right? Where you can keep building up with others. And it's just, it was beautiful. I thought so. Um, okay. Documentaries, right? I, I, this is a documentary. I love them. I already discussed it. They're raw, visceral, biased and unbiased, unconventional, even creative too. Documentaries have approached a myriad of topics throughout the decades. I've seen so many and I absolutely love them. I guess for you guys, why or why not are documentary films important in cinema? Uh, I think they're important just because they they open you up to things that you probably never would have even thought about at all. Like 90% of documentaries is just like, wait, that's a thing that happened at all? And I'm just like always blown away by any documentary I watch because – 
again, I just float through life and I, I don't know what's going on in the world a lot of the time. So documentaries help me a ton just on knowing what's going on in this crazy world. Good, bad, terrible, or just fun stuff too. There's a lot of fun documentaries. We'll talk about that later. Sure. Ugh. I work with a lot of with data and there's a very common uh, misnomer the uh, this idea that numbers don't lie numbers lie all the goddamn time <laughs> numbers lie constantly you know if you know how to make them lie numbers lie um context matters contextualizing matters so <clears throat> you can tell and that and that's actually some of the problems with documentaries is you can completely slant it you're mm-hmm. you're trying you're telling the truth for the purpose of of convincing somebody of something absolutely you know mm-hmm. maybe you're trying to get money you know appropriated to this area maybe you're trying to drive attention to this whatever have you you're tr- you're trying to accomplish something so it's a little there's a salesmanship in there <laughs> but as tom's saying it's a true subject but it's contextualized in a way that it's informative and meaningful and that's powerful. So Tom probably would not be interested in watching say a debates between, you know, vice presidential <laughs> candidates talking you about this issue. Debate. <laughs> yeah. You know, <clears throat> which by the way would be less informative because they're trying to win. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And at that point, like everybody's already decided who they're voting for anyway. Nobody's making up their mind the day of. No, or, that just you know. shows you how they speak on stage and how they debate. Right, which is meaningless. Does yeah, nothing. we all go in knowing who we're voting for on that, and, and right. we're watching yeah. it to make fun of the other guy. Right, I would have no problem. Absolutely, I have. You know, I'm the kind of guy who, if there's a conversation being hosted at say the university and between contrasting viewpoints and it's not a debate so much as a sit down conversation and they go through point by point and sort of spell it out that way. I would be in, intrigued by that conversation. Tom might be put to sleep by it, <laughs> but a documentary it's, you know, you could have conflicting like warring documentaries. If you want, I'm sure that's maybe a thing. Battle. Or docs. You could just have two dire documentaries about the same thing, like fire festival. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, that's and, a, I mean that's you, a good you're, one. <laughs> you're getting you're getting Which those one. Well, and yeah. you're getting the Both. two different <laughs> streaming service services, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're both focusing on the fire festival, except one is focusing more on Fuck Jerry, the PR company, the media company, who mm-hmm. was as culpable as Billy, whatever his his name is. I just call him Fuckface because I can't stand that guy. That's fine, um, that works. Yeah, and and like it's great to see that because you get those different perspectives, and and like Eric said, it you know there's going to be bias in any documentary you watch. Even, even this one has some bias. Um, you can, you know, that's okay. It's not a bad thing. Sometimes it can be a little problematic. Like, um, I look at Michael Moore and, um, I actually do like his films, but he does the kind of, he sensationalizes things a little bit. And I think in Bowling for Columbine, the part that I really don't like is when he goes to Kmart where they sell, ammunition and he gets it like banned or something a certain type of ammunition that was used in the Columbine shootings. And it's, it's just interesting because that one specific target wasn't necessarily at fault for what was to occur. I mean, should we then start banning uh, scissors for, for, for things? And, and like, I understand that that's a bigger conversation, but I have a hard time with that kind of extreme example in documentaries, but, but 
overall, like documentaries, I think that they're so great because they just have this power to inform and inspire and just really move audiences and they shed light on various aspects just of the world. So in thematically, uh, cinematically, it can be done really well. Things like the thin, thin blue line where you're, it's an investigative story about what really went down. And so you're doing interviews, but you're intercutting with dramatizations and that keeps the, uh, the viewer engaged. So I think that that's really great instead of just having a talking head to, to, uh, integrate certain film tactics. So I, it's yeah i so okay this is where my area of expertise does come in um i'm not a documentary filmmaker but my degree uh from college is in documentary playwriting which (laughs) is a thing but similar to documentary movies it's where you take a true story and you put it on the stage and there are different models of how to make a documentary play there's the kind of living newspaper model which is really just on stage reading out news headlines and newspaper articles. And then there's the more narrative approach where you take a true story and kind of just run with it and make up what you want. Um, And then the approach that I like is kind of in the middle where you are following the ideas of narrative, but you're not making anything up. Yes, there will always be some bias. Obviously, you always have some lens into a story. Um, but it's more where you, you take those newspaper articles, legal records, um, court transcripts, if you can, if you're lucky, if you build up a rep, you know, a a relationship with the people involved in the stories, you sometimes get to interview them and you can use those interviews to make basically your dialogue. So you turn those into scenes in the play where all of the dialogue has been created using the historical record. So sometimes the dialogue is from news transcripts. Sometimes it's an interview um, that you conducted or an interview from the news, um, and you use that to create your scenes. So, and I, I think, and I I did a, a play. It's about a decade ago now, more than that, I don't know, uh, <laughs> about a, uh, a teenage girl who, she had a baby, the baby died, Um, And the police interrogated her for two hours and 27 minutes and coerced her into a murder confession. I I can definitively say coerced. That has been decided on by a court of law. I have also seen the interrogation. She was also a minor and they did not properly Mirandize her. So that's that's not me using any fancy words to to be blasphemous here. It, It has been fully decided on that was coercion. That was a false confession. Um, they happen all the time. I'm not going to get into that. But um, so that was that was a case that I spent, and and I know we talked about how this documentary took several years. We spent four years working on that and wow. and getting to know the people involved and interviewing them. The cops would not talk to us. They were gag ordered um, because there was a civil action lawsuit for you know doing illegal things. Um, <laughs> But uh, we, you know, interviewed her lawyer, the journalist who covered it. We had all of the transcripts and files and uh, 911 calls that were made and, and used that basically to, to create the play. And, you know, what you can do with these things is that it, it that's such a small scale story, but it, you, reali- you realize like how big an issue something like that is and how frequently it happens. 
And sometimes these small scale stories are the ones that have the biggest ripple effect that it just mm-hmm. it resonates with someone or it makes you think about the broader implications of what this one person or this one story is. Yeah. Everything starts with a, a an idea, right? And mm-hmm. and I think that that can ripple out from there. Um, that reminds me of Paradise Lost, uh, the story oh. about the West Memphis Three that were yep. pinned for the rape and murder of two boys. And they basically, in this town in Tennessee, right, they mm-hmm. um, accused these three kids because they dressed in black, so like goth, and they listened yep. to Metallica. And that was the defense. Now, then when they went back and they looked at the police video and the recordings. I mean, they're interrogating some of these kids and one of the guys read at like a fifth grade level and he Mm -hmm. was 18. Uh, They interrogated him for six hours until he finally said, yeah, I did it. And he basically was saying everything that they told him to say, the Mm -hmm. cops. So very, very botched. But yeah, I think that that's that's cool that, you know, you can take that and turn it into to a play to, to, you know, adapt it. And you're taking those thematic elements and and really kind of spinning them in a way that's I don't I don't want to. I'm just going to call it entertainment because it still is is. entertainment to entertain and teach at the same time. If you can, you know, portray something in a way that someone wants to watch it, then you're going to make them sit there and watch it. And then they want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And just how it's done. I mean, keeping keeping someone invested is is the goal, right? Because Mm -hmm. they want to they want to leave it and be like, wow, that really was profound. And I I really enjoyed that. And they take a, a nugget of information away. Um, okay, so, you know, in my opinion, this documentary, like I said, was highly effective, and, and I really lost it when Stan uh, Stan Brock explained how he had to turn down a poor family in the parking lot. Um, you know, there's that shot of, of him, and they were telling, he basically had to just tell them, you know, you, you were just you were just too late. Uh, we, we had to close up. Even turning down certain people where they're like, we just we just have dental today, or like, we just have health care. Um, or medical, I think is what it was. And we can look at your teeth and tell you kind of what's wrong, but you'll have to go see a dentist, which is hard because these people went to them to see a dentist because they can't go see one. Um, And so those parts just really broke my heart because I am very fortunate for having insurance and having a job and having a a comfortable home to live in. And so uh, it really kind of, you know, is a reflection or self-reflection moment for me. And so I guess like I had many moments in this film where I was like tearing up, but did you guys have any moments that moved you in, in this movie, Eric? Uh, near the end there, uh, where they're in wise County, uh, Virginia. My grandma's from there. Are you kidding? Uh, huh. Wow. My grandma's from there. Um, my whole, their whole family from way on back pre civil war is from that area of Southwest Virginia, Appalachia, uh, country. And Appalachia is, some some Appalachian communities are some of the poorest communities you will find anywhere in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, that's moonshine country, and they, you know, they there's they don't just do it because they love it; they do it to make money. It's how they get by. Um, that is, it's it can be tough living out there, and it's also back to the politics thing. That's also deep, deep, deep Trump country. That's the place where it's like, man. We really appreciate y'all for for doing this service. Never in a million years vote for it, but we do sure appreciate you bringing it out here. And it's 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 kind of maddening. But I I know those people. I'm I'm from those people. That's my roots right there. That's where my family's from. So I get it. Um, just seeing that I've done a lot of work um, on ancestry. I've worked with my brother. Um, sort of deep sort of deep dive into that area, that part of the family. And I just recognize wise County. I'm like, Oh yeah. 
Oh yeah, that's where my grandma was born. Shit. Yep, that's very much it. <laughs> and like you know those moments when they were talking and they put him in there for good effect, uh, where they had a guy and he's like, you know, you're breathing at fifty percent of your of what you should be breathing at. And he yeah. was a coal miner. Um mm-hmm. and they have people that they're finding tumors that they're like, Yeah, you've had this benign tumor. Um, or the fact that they talked about the coal miners who they all the union had uh, insurance, but then mm-hmm. they transitioned to like new workers and those workers opted out for insurance and hazard pay and whatnot just so they could work. And I'm like, it's crazy. It's like a death sentence. I know that coal is a dying industry, but it's still like you're saying, it's one of the only things there. Yeah. And it did used to be lucrative. And but like your life is, sh- is what we, co- have. we are the Saudi Arabia of coal. Coal, coal is what we have. And racism, but (laughs) no, everybody's got that. But I'm saying, like, when it comes to coal, it's dirty. There's no such clean coal is a myth, by the way. There's no such thing as clean coal. But coal is what we have in there. So when they go, certain politicians go into that area and they say, "Well, we're going to open these back up again," they're lying. But it's a it's a comforting lie. It's a lie Mm -hmm. that they want to hear, and it's a lie that makes sense to them. So. I, you know, they, they sort of attach it to a weird kind of toughness. Granddaddy died from the black lung. And if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Oh my <laughs> I, gosh. I'm serious. <laughs> no, I know. Oh, that's dead at 55 from the black lung. That's, that's a crazy, crazy. That's closet. a whole other that's, issue of how do you combat that? And how do you bring in other jobs to make, you know? Well, and that's why remote jobs because when I, well, okay, but hold on. See, this is I know exactly I know the s- internet and the services out there are horrible. So the, that's it, a well, whole it's problem. not even just it's not even just you're right. Yes, it is the infrastructure, but it's also the 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 mentality of it. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Like with the comforting lie, they can go through and say, well, we're gonna go the the left will come in. Yeah, we're gonna teach everybody to code because Amazon's coming. Amazon, what? You're not going to teach some 50-year-old coal miner with black lung how to code, all right? Let's stop <laughs> pretending that learning to code is this easy thing to do, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, it's not even as lucrative as it used to be. 30 years ago, yeah, it was a really lucrative career. It's not anymore. It's just unless it's a specific kind of coding, like medical coding or whatever, like it, that's a different thing. That's a different data entry thing. Different um, coding. <laughs> different kind of coding, different data entry. It's not what they're saying though there's a the the liberal answer they can't connect with it's also a lie but it's a lie that those people can't connect with we're going to reopen these coal mines is a lie that they can connect with so it's a more effective lie it's all bullshit these people have no hope that sucks that really sucks and they know it but you're saying with remote work that's not work to them. They don't see it as work. They take pride in what they do. They take pride in their work. What they do, that is a huge part of their identity, you know, and there's pride there. To have them, to this idea that they're all going to learn to code or work on a computer and bust out these spreadsheets, that's, that's, that's a fantasy. It's fantasy. They're not going to do that. So what's the answer? I don't know. But it's not that. And they're not going to vote for it. And that, that's, a, that's a future they cannot connect with. But Eric, I want an answer now from you. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that is really interesting to think how how do you actually change mindsets out there? I don't mean for you know one side or the other, fuck what politicians are lying about. But sure. how do you actually make change out there and actually 
implement jobs that will work for them that won't give them the black lung. Yeah. You know, that is a, a more sustainable job infrastructure. Yeah. I don't know. I don't I I really Not don't know. I. I don't know what they're going to do in coal mining country and Appalachian country. It's 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 digging the coal mines or it's you know, make shine or it's service industry. That's pretty much what there is. So. What about you guys? Did you have any other uh, moments in this uh, film for, that kind of moved you? For me, the part where they show president after president after mm-hmm. president after oh, president, yeah. whether it's JFK, Ronald Reagan, Obama, all essentially saying the same exact thing and knowing, because I'm in the future, that none of this worked out. Like all of them said great things and it's just like, Oh no, (laughs) here we are. Uh, They all wanted it. They all wanted it so bad, but it just didn't happen for any of them. And that not a single one did anything really. It just got worse and worse and worse. And it's still terrible. I mean, one of the closer things would be Obamacare essentially, right? Mm -hmm. The affordable, uh, affordable care act. But um, that obviously had some issues with it as well. Had a lot of issues. And yeah, but at least it was the step in the right direction. But, yes. you know, then it was repealed when Trump was in office and, and they made a point in the documentary to bring that up. So it's like we have these things, but then they get taken away. Mm-hmm. And so and that's what it goes back to what Eric's talking about is it's not for the greater good. It's for how can I protect my political um, future and, yeah, and, and it's my not campaign. About the people. And it's not. And they can they can say it's about the people, but it's absolutely not. It never and, and is. It's just terrible. So, Tom, I agree. That scene really put it in more perspective because I'm like, it doesn't matter if they're uh, Republican or, or um, Democrat. Like they were both saying it. And it seemed to be like we had, you know, bipartisanship where healthcare needs to be at the forefront, but nothing was getting done. I, I mean, I also do think that there has been a shift in politics in terms of the two parties and and how extreme they have gotten that, you know, we look at things like Nixon, like Reagan, and I, you know, issues with both of them, not going to go there. But, right. you know, Nixon signed in the EPA, mm-hmm. you know, seeing them talk about health care and, and actually in their time trying to do things about it. Uh, there's some irony there to Reagan, but um you know, we don't have Republican politicians today even talking about wanting to make positive healthcare change and bringing healthcare to the people. It's no, we're going to get rid of it. That is what they are running on. So that, you know, that is a, a different, that is a shift from what it used to be. Not it's that it what, worked out in the past, but it still has shifted even worse. And that's, that's also what their voters are demanding. Mm-hmm. They they're demanding that they because the big fear is the, the government control. If the government controls your health care, then you it, it's more power over you. It's mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an overbearing amount of power over you and your personal health. And um, it, it's a, it's really at that point it becomes a, a control thing. And it, can you have a free society, a free citizenry, if you're absolutely dependent on the government for something like this? Yep. I philosophically, I, I understand where they're coming from. Realistically, yeah. I'm not. I'm not even going to start. We've already started. Yeah, realistically, <laughs> we've, we been, we've been going after. Country's <laughs> job is basically, you know, to create a society that works for your people and for the betterment of your people, so that you have a thriving economy and a thriving society. And part of that 
is healthcare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fully agree. Amanda, did you have a moment from the movie that moved you? <laughs> oh, you mean aside from the ones that I mentioned where I was yelling at the screen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had a couple of moments of yelling at the screen and then crying. I actually, um, well, yeah, there's the lady the with all the empathy, her, um, mm-hmm. but with all the presence, that one, that got to me too. I actually, mm-hmm. um, I have a, a friend of mine sent me a link to his movie, which is like a sci-fi horror comedy. And I said, okay. I'm watching a healthcare documentary. I'm going to be real bummed out at the end of this. So then I can go watch this sci-fi <laughs> horror this movie. and Palette and, cleanser. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Oh, what is that? That's an indictment right there. <laughs> Let's go watch people eviscerated with big ass knives as a palate cleanser to the U.S. healthcare system. Ooh, I'm yeah. feeling so good. <laughs> wow. I mean, but there is truth in that, too. It's. It's sometimes real life is scarier than than mm-hmm. fiction, right? And I think sure. that that's the hard thing is is movies are are meant to be escapism or to try to evoke emotions and and even anger is still obviously a strong emotion. And I think it's important because it can really be that that catalyst to light a fire under your ass. And so and that is not to take away anything that was beautiful about this documentary, in my opinion. It's just it's a result of it. And I and I I don't want to speak for for the director Paul, but I, I wonder if that was try what he was trying to get at too on top of also uh, exemplifying what Stan Brock stood for in this this uh, you know remarkable person oh and I'm not saying I was angry at the movie sure. I was yeah. angry yeah. at the state of our oh, world 100 percent which and I I'm, think I'm, you know is you. indicative I'll, that the movie was doing its job exactly I really want to circle back on one thing really quick because something that uh, connected with me is something I I knew at the time um it, you talked about how there were still some problems with Obamacare and all that. Uh, didn't cover vision or dental. Yep. Oh, yeah. Doesn't cover vision or dental. And Mandy I is see a yeah. dental Three assistant. of us are wearing glasses. Are we doing this for fun, you guys? Is seeing no. just for fun? <laughs> no. I like seeing. <laughs> I mean, it is fun to see, but I'm not just doing it for fun. <laughs> all right. Quick teeth check. Everybody have teeth? You got teeth? Oh, yeah. yeah. My yeah. Teeth. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. Cool. Right. Yeah. And if yeah. you have, that can I'm be indicative of heart problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But- yeah. But teeth are just uh, vanity bones, guys. Vanity bones. Well, and that's the kind Crazy. of thing that pisses Mandy off because she's a dental assistant. And mm-hmm. uh, specifically, she uh, works in pediatrics. So she works on little kids and their teethies to get them Aww. all right. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, but like, look, your health starts in the mouth. I mean, mm-hmm. it all breaks down right in here. It's where it starts. And we treat it like it's up, just a sort of you know vanity thing. And it's, it's not. So I don't understand how that or vision, especially I do not understand how it's not covered by regular insurance. I don't get nope, that. I don't, and, I don't know what, and I really feel like that is something that God, why can't we find a way to, to agree on that? At least that it is part of your overall health. Nope. That's communism. <laughs> yep. Commies. Ooh. Yikes. Tom Marks, oh, boy. <laughs> Amanda Lennon, oh, boy. Yeah. Zach Trotsky. Oh, that, that works too. I'm more of a Joseph Stalin guy myself. Um, okay, so I showed my uh, grandma oh, no. a picture of young Stalin. Oh, what's she like? <laughs> yeah, Sam Elliott. Like... She's like you, oh Sam Elliott. Trotsky. <laughs> uh, Tr- yeah, Trotsky's one of the things Stalin. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think she was quite as thirsty as I was for. Sam Elliott and Roadhouse, but that's a special level, so. That's, yeah, uh, Sam, well, you know, Sam <laughs> he's a national religion. Let's right? let's uh, let's transition to this to kind of close this out on a, on a, on a higher note. So um, again, documentary, love them. I have tons of them I like. Do you guys have any documentary recommendations? 
Decline of Western Civilization Parts 1 and 2. The Decline of Western Civilizations Parts 1 and 2. Fucking Never heard love of it. those. It's about <laughs> Penelope Spheris. Uh, the first one is about the end of the punk music scene in LA in 1979, and the second one's from the 80s, and it's about hair metal, and there is a shot in the first one of the guy from X, like, frying an egg, and that shot has been recreated in so many other documentaries since that every time I'm watching another doc or true crime pro- project and I see that shot, I know exactly where they stole it from. Hell Yeah. Uh, I have a list of about 11 of them that I'm going to rattle off real quick. Go ahead. First, the one that I rewatched today because I needed my palate cleanser, Electric Boogaloo, the wild and unsold <laughs> story of Canon Films, the greatest documentary of all time. Uh, any of the untold documentaries on Netflix, they're all pretty great. Uh, I've only not watched like two of them. Uh, Beckham, the David Beckham one. Welcome to Wrexham. Uh, the 30 for 30 silly little game about fantasy uh, sports. Oh, uh, McMillions, Arnold, Facing Nolan, Wrestlers, and Chef's Table is great if you like food. <laughs> yeah, you like docuseries. I like that. Uh, I am, uh, you know, we're. I don't know about you, Amanda, but I know Zach and Tom were sports fans, so... Uh, anything the ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries documentaries I think are really really well done so well if, done they the human element in sports is I love it it's so fascinating to me and the 30 for 30 series is so incredible some of it is so moving and some of it's hilarious and some of it is absolutely heartbreaking um yeah so really I there's a few titles in there that I love like uh, Pony Excess uh, from Elway to Marino um, there was a silly little game about the mm-hmm. birth of uh, fantasy. That's really fun. And then um, I'm trying to remember the, the heroes one, the little league world series one with like, the Oh, little, Kirk little big men, little big men. That yeah. one is excellent. Yeah. 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 And it's uh, local cause it took place in Kirkland, Washington. So yeah. biggest little farm. That one's really, really good. Biggest little farm. Mm-hmm. I'm adding like these to it's my fantastic. list. Fantastic. It's so uh, good. If you like Jeremy Clarkson, Clarkson farm. I like Clarkson a lot and (laughs) like his memes because they're hilarious, but um, oh, good choices. Sports sports ones are fantastic. I mean, I have some sports ones on here as well, too. Uh, Senna about Ariton Senna, one of the greatest Formula One drivers of all time. It's incredibly sad, but it's beautifully done. Hoop Dreams, same thing. Uh, Two interconnecting lives basically about uh, progressing through the years um, of how they become basketball stars or, or the trials and tribulations of it. Um, man on wire is excellent as well. And talk about dramatization of, of one person who is just talking to the camera, but it's cut with dramatizations. I mean, he's just a larger than life character, um, exit through the gift shop. You have a, a Banksy movie that wasn't even about Banksy. It was about a guy making the Banksy movie and then Banksy decided that sucks. So he made it into his own thing about the guy making the movie. (laughs) Wonderfully done. Beautiful message. So good. Um, Reese fans, I think, uh, is how you say his name. He, he does the, uh, narration of it too. And it's great. Bigger, stronger, faster about steroids and in sports. It's one of my favorites. The King of Kong, a fistful of quarters about the drama that goes into competitive arcade gaming, specifically for King Kong again, hits home because Steve Wiebe is from Washington state. 14 Peaks on Netflix about, uh, the group that climbed these 14, the 14 highest peaks in um, the world. Bowling for Columbine. I know I said I was a little upset with how he had biased extremism in, in moments, uh, but but Michael Moore is still a fantastic filmmaker, um, in in my opinion. Super Size Me as well. Uh, it's a little dated, and I think as I every time I watch it, I kind of 
pick at things, but I still really appreciate Supersize Me for what for what it was. Um, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I talked about that earlier. Mr. Rogers uh, gets me every single time. I saw the trailer for it and I was crying. Um, I got a seat all the way in the back corner because I knew that I was going to cry and I didn't want to be around a bunch of people. And I sure as hell did. And it's so, so beautiful. So those are some of my favorites. Um, If you want to feel like your heart has been torn out of your chest and stomped on a million times, Dear Zachary. Oh, yeah. So I've never seen that one, but my friend was telling me and he's like, holy shit, dude. And he's like, uh-huh. I was bawling. So it, Yeah, there it is one of the saddest fucking docs. Yeah, this one's not sad. This one is actually beautiful. And we talked about uh, concert documentaries, but Stop Making Sense uh, from 84, mm. the Talking Heads documentary, hailed as probably one of the greatest concert documentaries of all time. We've seen ones with Metallica and we've seen the Rolling Stones and Woodstock and whatever, and most recently Taylor Swift. But Stop Making Sense is a beautiful transcendent look into uh, David Burns and his entire group because the it's it's shot so wonderfully like it's fun and their songs are obviously really catchy and we've all heard them before but how they start with just him on the stage with a boombox and an acoustic guitar and slowly build the band up to uh, the Grand Opry essentially um, and and everything that he does to interact with this small um, audience and all of his bandmates gives this sense of joy that he really loves what he's doing. And and I love that. And so it's, it's, it's an infinitely tappable, like foot tappable documentary that will get you, get you moving, get you shaken. It's beautifully shot. There are so many wonderful, intimate moments in it. And yeah, stop making sense is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And it's like, it's fucking incredible. So I highly, highly recommend that to anybody. Uh, that reminds me of the documentary about the 1999 Woodstock. Uh, if you like to see a shit show like Fire Island, great <laughs> documentary where you see things going so well and coming crashing down, which I oh, love boy. watching things come crashing down. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good choices. Okay. So uh, letter grade, Amanda, what do you give Medicine Man to Stan Oh, boy. Um, oh, God, that's weird. Okay. I, I've never critically reviewed a doc to be honest i all of my like review experience is a narrative and i think uh the point system is i guess is different um i overall think it's a very well-made doc um i think it's good i think it's effective um i think there are definitely you know there are some moments for improvement so i'll go b plus nice eric uh, I'll echo the B plus. Um, I really, one of the strongest parts are also one of the parts that sort of slow it down. And, and that's, and that's focusing on, uh, on our, our hero a little bit. I, I like that. And I think it's good because this is very much, um, you, you've got to talk about him quite a bit, but I think they get sometimes a little, there's a, probably a couple minutes too long focused on his story uh, as opposed to focusing on the issue he cared most about. Um, his story though is very interesting and I looked him up on Wikipedia and I'm like, wow, okay. I didn't realize he was a part of walking. That's really cool. So fascinating character, RIP to him. Um, but B plus a minus range, still really good doc. Really yeah. good. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I recommend anybody watch it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Tom. 
Uh, I gave it a B minus, but that's not the movie's fault. That's my fault of being in healthcare. So I'm already <laughs> like going into this, like being like, yeah, yeah, I know it's shit. I, I deal with it every <laughs> that's day. Fair. If if I wasn't in healthcare, it probably would have been like a B plus to an A somewhere in that range. So I didn't lower it too much. <laughs> okay. Understandable. Yep. You needed a break from what you do with your exactly. day to day. Especially because I actually watched it while I was working since no. I worked from home. <laughs> and it was just like, ugh. And then I'd look up and be like, oh, my job. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it, the documentary really offered a solution other than it just says, hey, it's here's really a problem sad. this guy like spent his dedicated his life to solving. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yep. It's, it's a very <laughs> interesting, very interesting man. Very cool documentary. But it's a complex issue it really it is. and it, it definitely makes you see his side and and believe mm. in what he's doing and then you're really sad at the end i mean especially the moments like when he's talking about um uh, the guyana village where mm-hmm. the nearest doctor's 28 days away on foot and and it's it's heartbreaking because he's he had to bury his his friend there they tried to get him out when he got sick and it's like if you get sick you're pretty much dead so it's a terrible terrible microcosm that is the united states healthcare system but it was important so for, i mean for that i mean i, I give this an a minus um i'm with eric there are moments that could be trimmed down a little bit that i think tonally it shifted um from when they were hitting a stride with focusing on the issues with the healthcare system and then they jumped to stands um mm-hmm. kind of background of him just maybe talking a little bit but that's not necessarily a bad thing because what they did with um, incorporating the footage of him as a younger cowboy really helped sell the story more and you see kind of what's going on. And it, it really did a good job of um, showing their building, right? And it's a dilapidated school. And then they do an overhead shot, like a drone shot of this awesome office building. You're like, oh my gosh, is that it? Like, and they build up that suspense. You're like, they just got a new building. Holy crap. Like that's, that's incredible. And it it gives you that moment of hope. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, I think moments like that are why this documentary hits so well is because I know that our healthcare system might seem like that dilapidated old, old school, but like, I promise you that we're going to get that new building, that big, beautiful building someday soon. And, and we have to remain optimistic, you know, because the cynicism in this world is ripe and for good reason. Um, but like, we got to remain hopeful, man. That's it's the only way we can really keep going. So, you know, I give it an A minus for that. But, um, you guys, thank you so much. This is such a blast. Uh, I love yeah. getting the gang, the gang back together. Um, Tom, <laughs> uh, where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at Tom Top Five. That's Tom with an H, just so everyone knows. <laughs> OK, are you working on anything right now? No. <laughs> <laughs> well very good well uh we also have the top five podcast and so he's a he's a cracker jack over there yeah. um eric uh what are you working on where can we find you on social media i am at snack burglar on that x bird site uh so at snack burglar that's my handle and i'm working on top five with you guys heck yeah man love it amanda what are you working on where can we find you on social uh i am at amanda jane stern on the thing formerly known as Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> um, I am doing promotion for my feature film that is on the festival circuit. The movie is called Perfectly Good Moment. It's a psychosexual revenge thriller. Um, we had a sold out New York premiere a couple weeks ago. We're playing in New York again soon. Um, and then I am also producing and acting in a short that the plan is to use as a pilot presentation in both projects i play a young woman who has an affair with an older british man so 
typecasting. Yeah. <laughs> it's not your fault. Older British men are sexy. <laughs> well, well, one of them is yeah. a revenge thriller. So. Ah, got it. And the other older British man is coming on our next episode. Hey. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, well, thank you, everybody. Um, stay tuned. Coming up, we will have a exclusive interview with the director of Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story, Paul Michael Angel, and marketing manager of Remote Area Medical, Poppy Green. Hello, everyone. I'm Zach Rancourt, and I have the pleasure of introducing director Paul Michael Angel of the documentary Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story, and marketing manager of Remote Area Medical, Poppy Green. Paul, Poppy, thank you so much for joining me today. Paul, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm just really excited to be talking about film and the nuts and bolts of how we do things. So yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Poppy, how are you this e- or this day, I should say? <laughs> I am doing great and super excited to be here chatting with y'all. Excellent. Well, let's just jump right into it. So I guess, uh, you know, this can be for both of you. Can you tell us uh, the inspiration behind creating a documentary about Stan Brock and his work? Well, I'm sad to say that my research skills go no further than checking the newspaper. And I was lo- I was reading the Sunday Times in London in 2011. And I come across this article that says, here is somebody doing free pop-up healthcare clinics all across the US. I'm not totally shocked. I know that there's problems in the US healthcare system. It's 2011. Uh, the ACA is um, about to be signed into law, if I'm not getting my chrono- uh, timeline incorrect. Um, I've been following that. You know, I was aware uh, that there's nearly 50 million uh, Americans that can't afford to see a doctor. Um, however, when reading about Stan, I realized that um, he's got this incredible backstory. So he's... Um, He's a guy who has fled from his stuffy English uh, private school. Uh, he, he's turned up uh, at a ranch in uh, Guyana, completely unskilled, and says, hey, I want to be a cowboy. Teach me to be a cowboy. Um, becomes the ranch manager after about five years um, and is then discovered. Uh, sorry, I missed out a bit where he kind of like has to prove himself to all these Brazilian vaqueros, these Brazilian cowboys, which is kind of interesting uh, macho uh, horseplay um and then some u.s wildlife tv producers uh, come on holiday actually to the ranch and this is in uh, about 1962 when the whole concept of uh, wildlife tv actually didn't exist so they've got this idea for something that becomes known as mutual of omaha's wild kingdom they see stan um you know the barefoot cowboy wrangling horses and um, charming the animals from the trees. You know, he's got like a pet cougar. um, And they think, wow, this guy's absolutely perfect for wildlife TV. So, you know, they they take him to um, America. He becomes a star. You know, that plays its course. That that whole uh, process runs its course. He kind of becomes disillusioned with um, the TV world tries his hand at action movies, you know, they don't work out, doesn't make a lot of money. He's clearly a man at a crossroads in life. And um, I won't ruin the film completely, but there's something that's happened in his past when he's he was on the ranch in Guyana that makes him think that 
healthcare is the thing that he should um, focus on. And and what really kind of hammers the message home to him is that when he looks around him himself in um, he's living in Chicago, he sees there's loads of people that don't have access to healthcare, and he's he's quite shocked because he's he's only just arrived in America. Um, anyway, all of this showed uh, just immediately jumped out at me as the sort of rich, deep story that you need to explore the um, healthcare issue in the form of a feature-length documentary. You know, if it was a 60-minute TV piece, um, you could kind of do it just on the clinics. Um, but fortunately, Stan gifted us all this wonderful uh, backstory, and that's why I think um, it, it works as a feature-length, as a more in-depth look at a man's life. Can you talk about the process of, of getting this film made and, and partnering with Remote Area Medical? Yeah, um, so it, we financed, well, in the beginning, um, we financed the film by crowdfunding. Uh, so in some ways, we've had the same kind of like volunteer ethos that um, Remote Area Medical had. And when I went to, when I spoke to Stan and, and um asked him whether it was possible to do a kind of film that was largely biographical, but also looked at what remote area medical were doing. Um, you know, he said that he, he, he was quite a modest person and he, he didn't want to uh, go into all of that, but we uh, eventually convinced him um, to do that. Um, and um, I think one of the reasons that, he thought that we might be able to pull this off as we shared the same kind of DIY startup spirit that remote area medical had had when it started. I think there was a sort of parallel in the ethos that we had as a bit inexperienced. who didn't have any money. We're, we're very keen and motivated um, working with volunteer crew for the first uh, couple of years. In fact, no volunteer crew the whole way, I should say. Um, so I think that's why um, Stan was happy to work with us because we had a similar ethos. There were actually much more experienced and more well-financed filmmakers around at the time who were speaking to Stan, but he he chose us, so we were very fortunate. Um, so in the first so in the first few years, all our financing came from crowdfunding. We did a Kickstarter, we did two Indiegogos, and then it was in 2014 that we managed to catch the attention of an organization called Iambic Dream, uh, headed up by a guy called Wal Kabani. And they came in and said, look, we haven't got mega money here, but what we can do is give you enough money to like, cover all the costs so that you can plan ahead, plan, uh, ahead and, and have some sort of financing in place to ensure production. But we didn't really have enough um, to pay any of the staff. So up until this day, um, all of the production staff um, have worked um, on a pro bono basis, but you know, in the f that's often the way actually in independent documentary films. You need people who believe in what you're doing. I mean, these these people are of a professional standard. People who've worked on TV documentaries for the cinema before. You need people of that standard who believe in what you're doing, believe in the cause, know that you will actually get this get one of these films finished because just finishing one of these things in itself is difficult to achieve 
and will trust you that you know should the thing make a for an absolute fortune you will pay them like you will distribute the money fairly and um, and we've we've been really lucky that everybody um in production has worked on that basis and i think they're all really special people just for like trusting trusting us i mean to be honest we've had people who who have come in and they couldn't they weren't um able to accept that and you know maybe they had their own financial imperatives and so on um so there's this rare there's this rare type of documentary filmmaker out there who will come in and help you in the knowledge that you can be trusted should the film turn a profit you know that that you'll um you'll see them you'll see them right as it were financially and that's that's the basis that we've all contributed to this film on just just on trust uh, like i say um all of the money we've spent really has gone on um flying to america accommodation travel any other uh production costs i mean most of the people who volunteered in production have brought all their equipment they've just like offered all their equipment out to me you know here's my tv quality camera here's my um pro pro level microphones so you know i don't take that for granted like i say some people have have seen what we're about and said oh i can't really get involved in this it's not going to be a return i don't know if you're ever going to pay me so yeah it's a real it's a real um gift that we've got the right crew here that um, are willing to get behind this and you know if it pay if it pays uh, if it pays out for us in the end then then great and if it doesn't then also great because we've all managed to achieve something and just just getting one of these films finished and out to theaters so we're we're really happy to to be able to take the film to theaters it's it is hard i think to get a documentary um to theatres these days. I mean, it's not the most uh, lucrative genre of filmmaking. So, um, yeah, we've really relied on the goodwill of others to get here, definitely. Yeah, and Paul, I mean, that's that's so wonderful. Poppy, I, I see a lot of similarities in what Paul's saying with his crew and, and with the production of this film. And I see that with Ram depicted in the documentary. So can you can you discuss more of how that integration was when Paul approached you with this project and how Ram how it re- was received at Ram and like what that process was like on your end? Absolutely. <clears throat> so again, thank you to Paul and everyone who have carried this project, this labor of love, for all these years. Um, when I joined the organization, uh, the project was underway. And I got a few glimpses in to see that connection that Paul had forged with our founder, um, that friendship, that admiration uh, that really powered this project through. Um, It's been a tremendous gift to the whole organization. Um, And for Stan, who gave everything to start Remote Area Medical and to the nearly 200,000 volunteers who have given to the organization uh, their time, their talent. Uh, it's a testament to the human spirit, uh, the power of people coming together for a good cause. Um, and the years of production, um, all of all of those, uh, I'm sure, sleepless nights. Uh, I had a moment um, where Paul and crew, they were out in a wise Virginia, and it was late at night. There's some uh, activity going on in the parking lot, and they were there capturing it. Uh, they were very much a part of the team. 
Uh, and it's rare to meet people that are willing to give with no expectation of reciprocity. Uh, the clinics there are long days, uh, on site between 4.30 and 5 in the morning. And a long step alongside the volunteers, the healthcare professionals, the general support that make remote area medical, everything that it is, uh, Paul and crew were there. Uh, they, I'm sure Paul has some great memories of uh, one-on-one moments he got to share with Mr. Brock. Uh, he really inspired us all. And uh, I think that this documentary, this film, really captures the spirit of our founder, of all the volunteers that carry on that legacy, and also uh, as a tribute to what happens when you just give it all for a good cause. Yeah. And, you know, watching the documentary, I, I really felt that and I felt the impact. It was so visceral. And those nights that, you know, you had to turn down uh, guests because there was you, you couldn't do any more um, or times when, hey, we're only doing medical when in reality people needed dental and vision and they're doing basically parking lot checks of, of your teeth. And it, 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 it's so, it was so fascinating. And I think the medium of documentary was so important for this as opposed to a dramatization of like a film because documentaries are just so versatile in their ability to engage both intellectual and uh, emotional contributions. And so that's, I think that's, I really felt that as a viewer and it impacted me so, so um, wholly, uh, but everything that you're saying. And I guess, so Paul, how did you approach the storytelling and the narrative structure for this documentary? I mean, in terms of the initial approach, I had some very naive film school notions that I could make the ultimate observational documentary film. Of course. Not requiring <laughs> any formal interviews or any archive. It would just be this wonderful window, um, completely objective, so to speak, um, a window on Stan's world. And, um, I think within about 30 seconds of meeting him, I realized that that was going to be completely inappropriate because um, Stan had all these incredible stories of what had happened in the past. And I mean, life and death stories that had really affected him deeply. And to get the true dramatic impact, or even just to get the true the sort of proper strength of meaning out of these stories, you had to sit stand down in a, in a formal setting fully composed and let him tell the story in detail it, it wasn't going to work uh, just doing it on the hoof while stan's washing the dishes um he's not able to just turn around and be like oh let me tell you about the time when um i was uh, wrestling an anaconda and you know it they deserve to be um more composed in the way that um they were delivered so that was the first break with my um, naive film school ideas. Um, and I, 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 these days I really kind of believe in it's, it's horses for courses. Um, when it comes to documentary filmmaking, you should not be restricted by uh, a dogma that you've kind of defined at the outset. Um, so, yeah, after including formal, like, lit sit-down interviews, um, I... You know, I, I discussed Stan's past a lot and um, I thought, wow, these are incredible stories. Oh, God, I, I wish there was some archive out there that existed. 
And then I discovered there were two 1968 documentaries made about Stand by the BBC. And then I realised, of course, all that Wild Kingdom stuff, that's all available. And um, then we discovered, like, rushes from some of the B... Okay, there's the B movies that Stan did, but then we discovered that uh, the rushes for some of those B movies existed. Um, So there's a scene in the movie where you're seeing Stan in one of his um, B movies, uh, his action movies, where he's resting an anaconda, and this is because... But at this point in Stan's career, this has become like his party piece. You know, he'll he'll wrestle an anaconda at the site of um, a, a worm in the garden. Or, I mean, it's just like nothing to him. Um, so in these rushes, you can see Stan grappling with this anaconda and he's turning going, which camera, which camera? And he's like pulling the anaconda off his face as he's trying to speak to the cinematographer to get... And I, I loved it because it kind of encapsulated where he was um, at that point in his career. Um, obviously becoming a little jaded and a little worn out by it all, but still like desperate to do a good job, like still like a real a real trier, a man with like really high standards. Um, but you could see the exasperation. Um, so anyway when you see the archive you're like okay well we've got a we've got the archive we always dreamt of it exists wonderful um and you look at the film and you realize okay there's observational moments there's um formal interviews there's archive let's do a couple of setups as it were so like one of the just ruining the film completely now but um one of the setups we do is stand with the projector i mean it was kind of real because that is his projector that he owned in his um, in his um, office. Um, but we thought that's going to—it's actually the DOP's uh, Tom Gadsmith's idea. Um, that's going to be a great device to like, reflect on the past. I mean, it's not an award winner or anything; it's pretty obvious. But we well, let's do some setups, you know. So there's the projector stuff. Then there's the stuff for, with stand cycling, which I don't think we used too much. Um, there's a couple more kind of a composed setup scenes that we put in the movie that are quite um, nicely shot and cinematic. So, you know, at this point, it's like a real generic mishmash, um, a stylistic mishmash, I should say, rather than generic. Um, and then we started thinking, well, let's just, if we find great stills of Stan, let's use stills too. So bringing in stills. And then I was like, oh, I'd like some animation. And the producer's like, no, stop. <laughs> you are not having animation. That's going to be an absolute nightmare. It's going to cost us a fortune. No animation. So the producer's put his foot down at animation. Um, so I think the point here is that we've, we've, we've ended up with something that is um, breaks all the rules in terms of um, using different techniques all mashed together. And, you know, on paper, that shouldn't work. But, you know, and... Okay, I'm going to say I think it works, but one, I think one of the reasons why we made it work is awesome editors, absolutely awesome editors. Our editors wrangled this long and winding emotional story really well, but what they also managed to do was like transition from moments that are very much in the present and you're seeing the suffering of people, you're seeing the gravity of the healthcare crisis, and then they kind of transition you into a stand backstory moment, but in a motivated way. 
and and just kind of make it work in terms of audio and video and what's happening and i think our editors really helped us to create a kind of third meaning from the footage uh, in the way that you, in the way that you transition from the present to the past, the, the, that e- either side of the bridge, as it were, um, kind of spoke to each other and sort of said something about where Stan was psychologically, uh, mentally at the time. So I think that a lot of that is attributed to them, um, the ability to make these transitions motivated and to keep the narrative flowing, um, because when you do arrange a film non-chronologically it's very easy to do it badly let me tell you um you might you know it's it's easy for the audience to to be lost or to find the uh, transition from one scene to another kind of gratuitous and not have any meaning but i like to think that you know all the time we've put into crafting the movie when the transitions happen you're like oh i see what they're doing here they're kind of referring to Stan's psychological state or whatever it is. So, and this can be for both of you um, and Poppy, I'll let you, you go first, but what impact do you hope that uh, Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story will have on the audiences? Um, how do you see this documentary contributing to the broader conversation about healthcare and humanitarian efforts and, and uh, remote area medical? We are super excited for the release on November 14th. One of our biggest hopes is that it inspires people, inspires people to get involved with remote area medical, uh, to join the mission, to join the legacy that Stan has established, uh, but also to really spark conversation about what we can do for our own neighbors in need. Um, you don't have to take about poverty, or you don't have to give it all away, um, but you can, you can make a real difference uh, in your own community. I also hope that people, they, they step out of the theater and they feel the sense of empowerment that they can do this, that when we put aside our differences, we ultimately can come together. And on the whole healthcare discussion, I think that the film does a wonderful job of showing how this is not something that should be viewed in a partisan way. Uh, We have the shared humanity, uh, and as a result, we have this responsibility to take care of each other uh, through the shared suffering. Um, I don't want to be too sad, but, you know, to be human uh, at some level is to suffer. Um, And we need each other desperately. And when we put aside our differences, we really can do something powerful. And Paul, I think a moment that was really great in the film that you were discussing earlier when you're talking about the narrative structure is focusing on that moment when uh, they're opening the letters from people of the small donations, the 10, the 15, the $20 donations that keep that kept them afloat before you transition to the newer office. And I think um, those are really impactful to viewers. And I'll just speak for myself, because whenever we hear a thing of text $10 to donate to the Red Cross or, or whatever charity that may be. At times, it may feel like it gets lost and we we aren't really impacting. But looking at organizations like RAM, it really does make an impact and Stan emphasized that. And I think that was that was brilliant to add that in there because it really showed, one, what type of organization RAM is and also what type of person he is and like how impactful our donations can be. So I think that that was that was beautiful. 
Yeah, I mean, Stan was always determined to keep overheads down to an absolute minimum at Remote Area Medical. And of course, that meant for him not taking a salary, um, like never going out to a restaurant because, you know, he didn't want to spend any money. Um, living on rice, beans and water, um, which would just be brought to the office by friends. Um and I remember interviewing him in 2014, one, once the organization had moved into a new office and clearly like the finances were much healthier. Um, I, you, it's kind of covered in the film that the organization grows a lot in the time that we're with Stan due to um, media exposure and so on. Um, so I remember saying to Stan, um, okay, you know, the bank balance is healthy. Um, there are actually staff in here now, like a skeleton uh, of staff who are getting a small, uh, a relatively meager salary, but they are uh, getting paid. Um, there's no need for you to continue living like the modern day monk. And he was like, well, there is. And that's because when I started this organization, I took a vow of poverty and that's something that I've reiterated to every volunteer that's come in through the door. And it's one of the things that's motivated those volunteers to come in the door and those volunteers, they don't get paid. A lot of those volunteers spend their own money on airfare and, and gas. He said, so to take a salary now would actually be a betrayal of the principles upon which I established this organization. And it would be a betrayal of those volunteers. And I just thought that was the most wonderful, uh, noble principle to live your life by. It really, really impressed me. So I wanted to get across two things. One, that Stan is like the medical monk who's chosen a life of asceticism just because like, it's the right thing to do. Um, not because the organization like really needs it anymore, because like I said, their finances get healthier and healthier as things go on. Um, so yeah. And the second thing I wanted to show was that um, up until very recently, um, certainly when not while we were filming, remote area medical had no significant corporate sponsors, all of their funding um, up until, I mean, Poppy could probably tell you up until say, 2014 i think all of their funding was coming from small five and ten dollar donations from private individuals um and that's that's the kind of hard way to do things uh, in the modern world um most ngos have large corporate sponsors who ensure their um financial uh liquidity for like years and years in advance so they can work with um, a level of certainty about what's going to happen to them in the future. For most of the uh, time that remote area medical has existed, they haven't had that luxury. Um, and it was just lovely that Stan realized that the best way to keep going was to live by those original principles, even though the organization has evolved and developed now um to a point where yeah it is much more uh, financially healthy and able to deliver more care uh, therefore 
And Poppy, can you can you talk about that a little bit? So, um, in 2018, uh, Stan Stan sadly uh, lost his battle with cancer, um, unbeknownst to to many people outside of his closer inner, inner circle. And again, Paul, that part in the in the film, seeing that in there, just really broke my heart because, you know, it was it seemed almost like a shock watching it. Um, so, Poppy, can you discuss how Ram pushed forward and and what the future looks like? Um, without Stan in the picture, but his idea still strong within the organization. Yeah. So, uh, when Stan got sick at the end, his, one of his final wishes was to, um, pass at headquarters. Uh, so we did everything within our ability to bring Stan back to the office. Um, it was through the, generosity and the, the, that volunteer spirit uh, that he was able to come back to headquarters. And in those last days, he delivered a very clear message. Um, a person who'd recall missing, uh, skipping a flight to, to Bradenton, Florida, because we knew that time was short. Um, uh, I had a need to get down there, but to me, I wasn't going to miss that moment, uh, but Stan was very clear. Um, and to follow his legacy and to carry it on, carry it on um, he more or less told us we needed to carry on. So uh, I ended up driving to Florida. We had staff members going out to operations, um, and we got the news, and... Um, I personally, I was down in Bradenton, Florida, about to walk into a uh, hour-long interview segment that I had to take that day. Um, it was it was devastating. Uh, shortly after that, after Stan's passing, we had an operation in Haiti. Um, we actually had pilots in air on the way to deliver supplies to Haiti uh, when Stan passed, and we had to. We had to lean upon the foundation uh, that Stan had laid for us and that challenge that we needed to carry on. Uh, So I joined up with the rest of the team in in Haiti. Uh, We returned back the day of his celebration of life. Um, That was a a tough time for everyone in the organization because as he cared for the patients, he cared for the team here at headquarters um, and, and we lost a mentor, uh, a hero, uh, a friend. So we had that celebration of life. And uh, the next weekend, we had a clinic. And you see it in the film where Stan welcomed patients. Uh, he called the numbers, uh, greeting every patient as they came in, starting with patient number one. Uh, doors opening at 6 a.m., never late. And... Uh, when we were in Haiti, things were a little different, but it was back once we returned stateside. We were in Jamestown, Tennessee, and we had to open the doors at a clinic without Stan for the first time. Uh, we we found the strength to do it that day, um, and we still lean upon the legacy that he established for us. Uh, we're grateful. I'm personally grateful for all the moments that I got to spend working alongside Stan. Uh, He 
laid a foundation. Uh, he set a course. We still follow that course to this day. Um, still 60 to 70% of every, all of our donations, they come from individuals. Uh, those are those small checks that still come in. Um, you know, from little kids where they're giving their birthday money. Um, we get them when, when people pass and they uh, pass the hat at the service and, and send us the cash. Uh, we depend upon those small contributions just as we depend upon volunteers uh, who maybe they can't, you know, give up everything and, and travel all around with us, but they can give a couple hours and help set up a clinic um, and, and to really hold us to our roots. Uh, there's still operations to this day where uh, we will go, uh, for example, to the southern border of Texas. We go there every summer and uh, we pack our cots and we sleep on the gym floor. Uh, that is everybody from Jeff uh, Eastman, our CEO, who worked alongside Stan and Chris Hall, our COO, who started volunteering when he was 12. Um, you know, we, we pay tribute through even just those small actions where we need to remind ourselves that uh, everything that we do is for the patients. You know, this chair behind me, uh, if need be, we'll, I'll put that on Facebook Marketplace. I'll sell that so that we can uh, give more care to the patients. Uh, we don't, this computer, it's for the patients, if need be. We'll uh, pitch it and put it into patient care. Uh, and that's the ethos of who we are. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I think at this point we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up a little bit, but I'll give this time for you guys to explain more about what you're doing. So, um, what projects do you have coming up, Paul? And, and what would be the best way for listeners to learn more about what you're working on? Um, I actually don't have something that's like my burning hot desire project at the moment. Um, I tell you what I've been looking into AI. I'm looking for a kind of human way into the AI story. Um, I did. Uh, I did meet some people at University College London who are using um, novel. Uh, how should I put this? They're using um, AI to develop novel drug compounds based on psilocybin to treat mental health issues, um, which I find fascinating. Um, and it is a person, it is a kind of human way into the story of AI usage, because of course, you've got the patients, you've got the, uh, the doctors, researchers and clinicians who are developing the drugs, you've got like the wider population, who have an opinion on, on, on all this stuff. And you've got um, the tech companies behind all of this, the gov governments who are like looking at regulation. And I thought, well, there's a, at least three or four elements to the story. And one of them is definitely people focused. It's about patients and treatment. Um, and I'm really interested to go further with that. But the... Um, evolution the development of the story is actually quite slow i think they are actually having trouble getting the clinical trials to an advanced stage so there's not i keep i've interacted with i've caught up with them a couple of times and they're saying all oh, the 
there's not actually much to film yet. So it's, I think it's probably like the one area of AI that's not like racing ahead really fast is the one that um, I've chosen. Um, but more broadly in AI, I think there is um, potentially a kind of battle on to uh, regulate truth as we know it, which seems absolutely sort of crazy and dystopian, but might be very well-intentioned. So there's something called the... Um, uh, what's it called? It's called the, some, uh, the, the Collective Initiative. There's a collective initiative to um, regulate what uh, f- fake news produced by uh, AI, AI video, as opposed to like human produced video. So this is a collaboration between um, tech companies like Adobe, can the camera manufacturers such as Sony, I think Apple are involved. I mean, I'm probably getting all the details wrong in this, but the general idea is that the the industry itself is taking the lead on this rather than uh, governments, which is interesting. And then what they're looking at is a way of being able to hold up a, a piece of video and say, okay, this is AI produced and this is human produced. And the way it would work is that um, some form of metadata is embedded at the, at the sort of moment of um, production of the video. And the, um, the metadata is present throughout the whole chain of um, delivery. So, so from initially being shot and then edited and then playing out on the internet as like a compressed video file. Um, the metadata is embedded from beginning to end of the process. So that at the end of the process, the uh, video can actually be verified as shot by a human um, and and labeled as such um but the metadata would be embedded so that it's not visible it can be like checked but they could also potentially like watermark the footage to let people know like this is human produced and this is um uh, ai ai generated um so i mean that is interesting to me because that seems like we're moving towards a world where this this body would regulate what what we consider to be true and what we consider to be AI generated, i.e., fake in many people's parlance. Um, and you know, th- th- there's something dystopian about that potentially, but um, may well be entirely unnecessary in a world that's becoming increasingly flooded by AI generated video. Um, so, I think the the reason that that uh, appeals to me um, in particular is that like, in some ways I'm working in a kind of truth makers industry as a documentary filmmaker, um, or at least my truth. It, it's certainly an attempt to show things objectively. I, I don't think um, anything can ever be truly objective because, you know, the moment that you choose to switch on a camera or switch off a camera, then you've already edited reality. You've already intervened and kind of uh, altered the process. So that, I mean, that's even before you get to editing where everything is incredibly chopped up and changed and so so on. But nonetheless, um, I, uh, we, we are in, in the so-called kind of truth-making industry Um so I really wonder about the implications of AI on that role. I mean, if we're in a world in the future where um, the majority of video is AI produced, does that mean that like human produced video uh, 
is is considered more authentic and therefore is at a premium. It has like more value because of that. And, and what does that mean for the, the prospects of people like me? I, I mean, I think that that probably means um, there's going to be a lot less space for people like me. It, it'll become distilled down to the people who are absolute masters of their craft. Like mediocrity in human produced video just won't be acceptable because perhaps it could be generated by AI instead. So all of these questions I'm sort of puzzling over at the moment and I can't say I've really found a way into into that one. Um, I mean, the, the immediate response from people is, um, well, making a film about regulation is pretty boring and I, and I agree. Um, in fact, case in point, a big, store, a, a big part of... Uh, what, uh, what Stan was pushing for was um, to overcome regulations that stop uh, practitioners from practicing in a different state where they're not licensed and so on. So this idea about uh, doctors crossing state lines to deliver free care is basically illegal unless you're actually licensed in that particular state. And um, I was going to feature that heavily in the film at one point, but then realised it's really quite difficult to make a film about regulations. Like what you're going to end up with there is a lot of um, scenes of people in committee meetings and, you know, talking in court and it's hard to find the drama. It's hard to find the, the emotion, the pathos, or everything that makes us tick as humans, human beings. So the way that we address the state lines issue in the film is to be very light touch about it. It's to refer to it but not make it the be all and end all, not to make it like the thematic focus of the film. So I think um, when addressing AI in film, you face similar challenges. Um, so it ha absolutely has to be uh, a human way into the story. And you know, I think I'm still looking for that, to, to be honest. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I know over here in uh, in Seattle, University of Washington, they were using AI to synthesize protein strands, actually. So much like you were saying, um, I, mm. I heard an NPR article about it, and it was uh, it's fascinating, um, the good that AI mm. can do, and inversely, uh, the negative that it can, can uh, you know, affect our ethical um, situations and create dilemmas and such so yeah mm. look, looking mm. forward to that when you when you finally finally narrow that down it's I'll, I'll, be, I'll, yeah. I'll, well i'll try and take less than eight years to make it <laughs> <laughs> unlike medicine man there you go <laughs> um poppy can you uh can you tell us any more uh, projects that ram has and what's the best way for the listeners to learn more and to um, volunteer or donate uh, to ram yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the cool part about uh, the upcoming film release on November 14th is that at the end of the kind of like a scheduled content, um, Paul and crew have been so kind and courteous to do a little update. So there is additional content that will be shown afterwards. Um, but some of the things that we are working on, they're really focused on delivering high quality patient care. Uh, so we have some things that we're currently recently we rolled out on and we're looking to expand. Uh, so now we're offering panoramic x-rays at our clinic. This one that goes like all the way around your head. Um, so we have a sprinter van outfitted uh, with a panoramic x-ray unit. Then we're doing some stuff uh, focusing on delivery of dentures, um, 
building out some new mobile units that will allow us to get in into even more communities. Um, we uh, we have grown, thankfully, um, and that allows for us to deliver more patient care. Uh, but also, as anything grows, the logistics of it grow. Uh, so we've been focusing on some ways to get back into more or even more rural communities. Uh, and for anyone who's interested, our website is ramusa.org, R-A-M-U-S-A.org. Uh, on there, you can find out all sorts of information. Uh, you can volunteer, you can donate, you can learn what it takes to bring a RAM clinic to your community, all of which are super great ways to get involved. Uh, and we welcome everybody. Uh, we have some other cool things on there, like signing up for our newsletter or getting our digital and print magazine that we send out. Uh, so we encourage anyone who's interested to go to our website. Uh, but also, the first thing you can do is just come out to the theaters and check out Medicine Man. Uh, it's November 14th, one night only nationwide. 700 plus theaters. Uh, I know I have my ticket secured. I hope everyone else has their ticket secured because uh, it's something that you don't want to miss for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I mean, your organization is fantastic. Um, I, I really loved how it was captured in this documentary on, on, you know, grassroots initiatives and it felt so, um, I don't know, uh, homey and, and, and necessary and, you know, real salt of the earth. And, and that's, that's what we need. Um, and I think that it's important to have people like Stan Brock to, to understand that in, in this entire, you know, cynical world at times, there are good people out there that do want to make a change. And so it's, it was, it was beautiful to see, and it, it helps us kind of uh, reassess what, what we're focusing on and the, the importances in our life. So, um, Poppy, Paul, thank you so much for joining, uh, for this, for this interview. Um, everyone else, Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story releases in theater nationwide on November 14th. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, don't be crazy. Um, all right, everybody, if you would like to learn more about Remote Area Medical or to donate, please visit ramusa.org. Thank you for listening to the Don't Be Crazy podcast. Remember to follow us on Twitter and threads at dbcrazypod and at zachdale60, where you can share your thoughts, give us film suggestions, tell us if we're crazy, or just send us funny memes. Make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave us a five-star review if you like it. Additionally, we are also available on every other major podcast app. Thank you for listening, and until next time, don't be crazy.